Hello, everybody, and welcome to the sixth episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that bans only the cards you don't need and reprints everything you do. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to our sixth episode and discussing all sorts of exciting stuff this week. Uh, MTG Fast Finance is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, why don't you break down the four segments we'll be covering this evening for the good folks? Sure. This week, we've got four topics. We have the top movers of the week. That's where we're going to look at the cards that have seen the most growth in the last week. We are then going to move on to our buy watch segment where James and I discuss the cards that we think you should be keeping your eyes out for. We're going to hit uh, segment three, the week in review. This week, we're going to be talking about the modern Star City Open from St. Louis. And then we're going to finish up the week with our topic in segment four. Uh, this week, it's going to be hybrid of both Conspiracy 2 and Modern. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in on segment one. James, why don't we start at the bottom of the list? What's our first card this week? Well, one of our more laughable uh, buyouts of the week and uh, big movers was One With Nothing, uh, Saviors of Kamigawa uh, block rare uh, that was previously a, a bulk uh, rare uh, sitting around that nobody had any idea what to do with since for one black mana, it discarded your entire hand um, without having any direct impact on your opponent. Um, I guess the... Uh, concept behind the buyout here is that this thing will synergize with madness cards in in modern um, or something. Um, it seemed like a really weak play to me. It, it it definitely it's definitely very weak, a very casual madness enabler. But this card sort of has a reputation as being the most amusing of the worst cards. I think Mark Rosewater has written like three articles where he's talked about one with nothing specifically as an example of bad rares, quote unquote bad rares, and why they print them and, and so forth. So uh, it's just kind of funny that the poster child for the worst cards in Magic is on our list this week. Yeah, I mean, the, the card's gone from $2 to $4 in theory. Um, I have trouble believing anybody's going to be able to unload any um, at that level. But if you get the chance, by all means, people, um, go ahead and exit um, out of your bulk box into something reasonable. Yeah, no kidding. Um, next up is Null Rod from Weatherlight. This started the week at about $15. Uh, right now it's about 40 bucks. That represents a $25 increase, about 166%. This was part of a major movement of reserveless cards we've seen in the last week, week and a half in response to the Eternal Masters announcement. Um, you've just seen a lot of reserveless cards really move. I don't know if this was a coordinated effort by somebody or group who targeted useful reserveless cards or if it just happened to get caught up in the hysteria of the announcement. Uh, but it's it's not too surprising to see this move here. Yeah, I mean, this is a card that occasionally sees play in, in Legacy and, and can be good in Vintage. Um, but what's, what's really going on here is that the attention um, that has been garnered um, by the announcement of Eternal Masters 
um, has really put the focus on uh, reserve list cards as potential buyout targets um, on the basis that many of them have low inventory and um, through the announcement uh, of EMA, um, inclusive of the fact that the reserve list will not be disposed of, um, it reinforces for anybody who wants to throw some money at these cards um, that for you know five hundred to a thousand dollars, sometimes two thousand dollars, you could scoop up the last thirty or forty copies on the internet and basically be in control of of the market until you know cards start leaking out of collections. Um, but you know, in, in many of these cases, after buyouts of real cards that do see some play um, or have you know some piece uh, of history, uh, magic history associated with them. Um, it's not uncommon to see the the plateau, you know, settle back down 25 or 50 percent lower than its peak, but it still represents a significant gain for people to get in early. Um, so I, I don't think this will be the last of the reserve list cards to pop in the next little while, and it's not even the last on our list this week. Next up is a dark car wastes. Uh, we've seen versions. Oh God, Ice Age fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. I might be missing some. This is the blue-white pain land, uh, which is essentially a tri-land in the blue-white Eldrazi deck from Modern. Uh, this moved from 350 to, and 350, by the way, is like on the ninth edition. The Ice Age copies were a dollar or so, uh, to 14 to $15 right now, about a triple up in price at least. Uh, I mean, this is, this is the, you know, if you're building a blue-white Eldrazi list, your deck starts four Eldrazi Temple, at least two Ayabugans, and then four Darker Wastes. And despite the number of printings that this card has, all of them are from very early in Magic's lifespan, um, so supply is not high. And I want to point out here that this is very real. Uh, you know, some of these spikes we see, I think, settle sometime later. Uh, with with the eventual actual sale prices being you know maybe halfway between their start price and their finish price, but I sold a playset of a darker waste this week for sixty bucks. People are buying this card at that number, which is uh, pretty amazing to me. Especially if you've been doing this for a while, uh, you know that when you're flipping through collections and you hit the Ice Age section of the box, which is usually a big chunk of it, you pretty much just put it down and, and flip past it because there's never been anything worth any money in that set, and suddenly this land cycle. Uh, is all started climbing. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty amazing for any of us who have had tons of this stuff sitting around in bulk. I mean, I pick, pulled 50 or 60, um, uh, I guess we're going to call them tri-lands now, out of, my, uh, out of my bulk boxes and binders and out of the super collection uh, about two weeks ago as this, you know, kicked off. And, you know, I gave people a, a week's breathing space on Puka Trade before I started sending them out. Um, but the demand was still there. I mean, there's still 30 or 40 outstanding requests for Adarkar Wastes um, on Puka Trade as, as we speak. So, um, you know, this I don't think that uh, this is a card uh, or a cycle of cards you want to be holding on to for much longer. Um, I fully expect these to deflate some once the we get closer to the inevitable ban of the Eldrazi lists in modern um, come April. So, you know, but right now, if you've, you know, managed to dig up some copies that were sitting around in your old binders, this is just, you know, free money. Um, trade this into something um, longer term, some MM2 staples or something that you're going to need. And, you know, I think you'll be quite happy with yourself. Definitely, definitely. Uh, what's next? Uh, next up is uh, another uh, reserve list card, Firestorm uh, from Weatherlight, I believe. Um, it's a four or five dollar rare moved up to almost twenty dollars for about a two hundred percent gain, um, two hundred two hundred fifty percent or so. 
Um, you know, this is a, a card that can potentially work with madness mechanics as well. Maybe this is the the same people that were after one with nothing and um, were after this, but it's also just part of this whole reserve list um, buyout uh, approach. I mean, I did notice that this card was relatively low on inventory before it spiked. Um, wasn't a tremendous surprise to see movement on it, although I, I do question going after this card before some of the other reserve list cards that haven't moved yet. Um, but again, just a, a big move and a, and a card that is unlikely to be needed in any of your decks anytime soon. Go ahead and dig a couple copies out and, and uh, trade out into something good. Yeah, this may be, I'm guessing, an intersection between both the Eternal Masters pressure on restricted list cards and also the Madness. That, that seems to me the most likely culprit on Firestorm. Uh, it does see, did see fly playing dredge decks. I remember I had to pick up a play set of these when I built dredge some number of years ago. Uh, so I does see some play, I guess. Um, okay, next up on the list is Arborea. Uh, this one's from Legends. Started the week at about three fifty four dollars a piece, and it is now about twenty bucks for a four hundred percent grain, four hundred percent gain. Uh, you will remember. Uh, Devoted fans of this podcast will know that I talked about Arborea about two or three weeks ago as a card to buy. So this is Legends card, low supply, kind of useful. Uh, there weren't that many copies left. We joked about how there weren't going to be any left after the episode ended. And now here we are later, two weeks two weeks down the road with a quadruple up in price here. Uh, so, you know, I guess chalk that one up on the board to us, James. I don't know if that goes under the things we should be proud of or things we should be ashamed of. I'm going to give you all due credit. I mean, I, I, I noticed that it looked like a juicy target after you mentioned it. I kept my finger off the trigger, didn't pick up any copies because I wanted to see what would happen. And sure enough, they went anyway. Um, so that, that was a good call, Travis. And uh, I hope our listeners cashed in. So next on the list, we have Thorn of Amethyst, uh, a Lorewind rare, um, which is very much uh, not uh, on the reserve list and uh, can <laughs> easily be reprinted when the time is right. Um, it went from about $3 to $15. Um, for about a 400% gain. And this is on the basis that it's uh, a potential staple in the legacy version of the Eldrazi decks where it's run as a four of to slow down um, the, the decks that want to cast multiple spells per turn and take advantage of the fact that the average casting cost in that format is something like 1, 1.5. Um, and uh, it, it's a powerful card. I've been watching streams all week um, and watching how the card can you know shut people out of the game and let the Eldrazi run rampant. Um, you know, it, it, it's a card that is, was printed six, seven years ago. Um, so it's had time to mature. It's had time for the attrition rate on uh, available inventory to kick in. And, um, you know, it's probably going to be uh, a year or two before we see a reprint. Um, it could show up in one of the supplemental sets, EMA or Conspiracy 2 this summer. Um, but it's not, I wouldn't think it would have been high on the priority list for Wizards given the price point when they were planning those out. Thorn of Amethyst is one of those cards that makes me uncomfortable just the same way that uh, Ensnaring Bridge does, is that you have a card that is fairly narrow and useful in certain scenarios, but is so clearly, the price is so clearly a product of its restricted supply, and they could just shove this anywhere. And you could go five years without seeing a reprint, but, or you could see it reprinted twice in two years. So this is uh, Throne of Amethyst is a card, and it's Starting Bridge is a card I would be uh, shoving out of my binders as fast as I could because you never know where you're going to get your when you're going to get caught with your pants down on those. Um, yeah, the, the, there's not a lot on this list this week that that I want to be holding on to um, post their, their their spikes. I mean, the next card on the list is another reserve list. Um, 
uh, this one is Scorched Ruins um, from Weatherlight, uh, a land that went from $3 to $20 for almost a 600% gain this week. Um, uh, if you've never seen this card, it makes you sack two other lands when it comes into play, but then taps for four colorless. Um, I guess the, the thought here is that this could potentially be useful um, for fooling around with Eldrazi in both Legacy and potentially EDH, um, where it has already um, been used in colorless decks before. Um, you know, the, the deck, the, the card simply cannot be reprinted. Um, there was relatively low supply and, uh, yet another example of how reserve list cards can, are, are very juicy targets because they can dry up very quickly, uh, when decide somebody decides to make a move. Um, you know, again, there was probably less than 50 or 60 copies total out there to hunt down. Um, they were only two or three dollars. So, you know, for less than a couple hundred dollars, somebody has cornered the market. They only have to sell something like 20 or 25 percent percent of that inventory you know over the next year to have a very reasonable return mm-hmm. absolutely and this is i saw i saw scorch runes get a lot of uh, a lot of hate because you know this is the wasteland format so uh it, it's kind of hard to imagine yourself wanting to sacrifice all those lands to play scorch ruins but you know this just goes to show you the card doesn't necessarily have to be good to be expensive sometimes all it takes is hope and expectations yeah definitely why i said definitely why i said fooling around because i'm dying for somebody dying to be playing the wasteland deck when somebody goes temple eye of ugin and then sacks both of them to scorched ruins when i have a wasteland in him i mean i guess you could play this on like somehow you could generate a blue mana and then stifle the trigger maybe in some sort of stifle list (laughs) i mean i'm already running a, a, a utterly brutal um, stifle uh, Phyrexian Dreadnought uh, Eldrazi list in, in Legacy. I'm, I'm not sure it can get any more sketchy, um, but um, you know, I could always try. Yeah, well, this is this is a line if you choose to take it. <laughs> uh, Alright, next up is Magmatic Force from the first Commander printing. That's the only printing. This has gone from $1.50 to 10 bucks. That's about a six, five to 600% gain uh, on this guy. You know, the original Commander set had pretty suppressed prices for a while, and then suddenly it didn't. Uh, we saw, we've seen a lot of cards from that set that have only been printed in that set move, and the ones that haven't moved have been slowly ticking up and, and as, that, as that supply uh, goes through the typical attrition process, and the cheap copies disappear. So I'm not, I'm a little, I guess I'm a little surprised Magmatic Forest was the first one to go, um, but I guess at the end of the day, I'm not surprised that it did. Uh, and I would keep an eye out for the other cards that are only from this set, kind of check out where they stand on EDH rack, uh, check out buy lists and inventory because there may be some other juicy targets from this set. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about attrition rates, the the fact that over time, no matter how many copies of a card they print, most of them will disappear from the marketplace um, and end up in, in inaccessible places. Um, and the thing with the commander sets is because you only ever get one copy of anything, um, if you bought that commander deck intending to play it and use the cards that were within it, um, then the odds are that the attrition rate on that set is going to be much, much higher than it would be uh, for a set that uh, where you can open a booster box and open more copies than you actually need. Um, I mean, this is a, a seven, seven for eight that um, deals three damage to target creature or player in everybody's upkeep. So it's a custom tailored kind of, uh, uh, fatty um you know to to lay down in the mid to late game uh some of those you know big mana red decks um and you know fight an attrition battle against um the people around you but 
you know, it's not a major force in the format. It's just the simple fact that there just weren't that many copies around and somebody noticed that. And again, that's really all it takes for something to go off the handle. That's a really good point about the product availability that essentially one magmatic force costs you $30 or whatever, because you have to buy the box. You can't just buy packs. So you get less of them out there. I, this one, I do kind of wonder if we're going to see this, this is very viable for conspiracy. Keep in mind, conspiracy is a multiplayer format and this is a multiplayer card. So everything from the original commander, I think is maybe you hold off on buying anything from this set until conspiracy two gets passed. Well, and if you can get just one last point on force, if you, I mean, if you can get ten dollars for this uh, in trade, you know, uh, trade oh, yeah, this into yeah, a shockland yeah. or something, yeah, all day long. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so what's what's our big gainer this week? So uh, our our poster child for reserved list buyouts this week is Meditate, uh, a blue instant from Tempest for two and a blue. Um, you get to uh, draw four cards, but skip your next turn if I'm not mistaken. Um, this card went from $3 to $40 this week for almost a 1200% gain. And I'm going to attribute that to the fact that this is a card that actually is quite powerful. It's quite unique. Um, it's not, uh, as obscure as something like Scorched Ruins or Firestorm. Um, it's a card that, that can be put to good use in, in Legacy and Vintage. Um, and again, a, a card that because of its position on the list cannot be reprinted. Um, and therefore is a relative safe haven uh, for investment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it pains me to think about how many of these I've sold at, at five or six bucks. It's just, <laughs> I don't, I just, yeah. Let's just move on. Let's just move on. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Segment two. I'm right there with you, brother. Yeah, cards to watch. Uh, this is a list of cards that James and I uh, have our eyes on right now. Uh, this is where I talked about our Boria two weeks ago. Uh so James, you've got you've got the most this week. So why don't we jump in with your first card? So I mean, after watching so many things happen with the reserve list over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking pretty hard about where I would push some money. Um, one of my targets uh, is uh, another reserve list card. This one from Weatherlight as well, Phyrexian Dreadnought. Um, the reason I'm after this card is because I'm playing this card in, in my Legacy deck in Magic Online right now, um, alongside and. Uh, Eldrazi Shell with blue um, for Brainstorm, Force of Will, and Stifle, um, using the Stifles occasionally to um, cancel the trigger on Dreadnought and get a 12-12 Trampler for one, um, which has definitely put some opponents on the back foot this week. Um, Stifle has the side benefit, of course, of being able to counter fetch lands um, in that format, which can also be a complete blowout against some of the decks that run relatively low land counts. Um, and the interaction between Dreadnought and Mimic uh, is interesting as well, because even if you don't have a stifle in hand or some way to cancel the trigger, um, you can still get a 12-12 um, out of the Mimic for that turn. And if they don't have a blocker, you that can be lethal damage pretty quickly. Um, you know, this deck is not by any means a, a good tuned deck. This is my just a brew that I'm running. But I have heard lots of people talking about the combo ever since Mimic was de- debuted. And Dreadnought's been sitting in the $10 to $15 range for years and years and years. Um, there aren't that many copies left online as with many of the other cards from Weatherlight, uh, rares from Weatherlight. And, you know, I could easily see this card going from $15 to $30, um, for a hundred percent gain at some point this year, if somebody decides to pull the trigger on, on the last couple dozen. Uh, that is very interesting to me. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a great idea. I I'm going to preempt one of our listeners. I don't know who it would be, but I'm sure it would be one of them that, uh, Aldrazi Mimic does not gain trample. 
off the dreadnought trigger. It only yep. gets the power and toughness. Yeah, that's true. But you still, <laughs> it's not uncommon that you know if you've got some more Eldrazi on the on the table, they couldn't handle uh, Thought Knot plus Smasher plus Mimic in the first place, and they certainly can't handle a twelve twelve being the one they've got to block um, and letting the four four and the five five through. And I've been oh, in sure, that situation. Sure. I've been in that situation multiple times this week already. Oh yeah, no, I don't doubt it whatsoever. I just know somebody was going to nitpick that you said that it can't trample. Um, okay, my first card, and I and I, I forgot to mention this at the start of the segment. I, we should bring it up now. Is uh, we have this column on our list here of confidence level, which uh, James put in. Which I thought was a great idea, and you know I'm going to sh- kind of share mine because it gives you an idea of how strongly we feel about the card. It makes me kind of uh, think about it quantitatively. Um, so on a scale of one to ten, like how 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 strong we are about this recommendation. So my my first card here is Kozilek, the Great Distortion from Oath of the Gatewatch. Uh, it's sort of a short to midterm pick, and I have this as a nine. Uh, I know that's that's pretty pretty powerful coming out of the gate, but Jim Casale, uh, one of the other writers at MTG Price, pointed out to me the other day that this card is hanging around in like the seven to eight dollar range, I think, which is just crazy to me. I mean, this is this is an Eldrazi. Like, did, did we forget about that? Uh, Ugin, or not Ugin, I'm sorry, uh, Ulamog hit like 10 or $11, uh, at his low, and then was around 40 bucks. Uh, Kozilek, Emrakul, and the original Ulamog all went through essentially a similar curve back when they were in standard. And now we've got Kozilek, the Great Distortion at, at $7. I mean, it's just, and he's, he's really powerful. He draws you a ton of cards. He has an excellent ability after the fact. Um, uh, I see this as an extremely easy double up and possibly triple to quadruple, depending on how the standard metagame shakes out and we lose these four-color monobases and the Eldrazi escape unscathed. Uh, I, I don't think that there's there's very few places in Magic right now that I think are safer to put your money. Yeah, I mean, in the short, I don't think I agree with the nine on confidence level. I think I would give it a five because a standard could go any which way once we see um, how Shadows of Innistrad shakes out. But I will say that there are nice, some nice potential interactions between Kozilek and discarding Madness cards. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, mid to long term, I'm right up there with you with a nine. Um, there's, there's no way that this guy stays, you know, sub $20 two years out. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm seeing, you know, 400 plus copies um, on TCG. So it's not going to evaporate anytime soon. If you decide you want to go deep, you can pour some money into it and not worry about shaking up the market in the short term. Um, and then, you know, if you get lucky with, with standard, um, trends, fantastic. If you don't, you stash these away, pull them out and, and, and buy list them in, in a couple of years. And I think you'll be very happy. Yeah. It's just, it's just so safe. Like if you, if you miss a standard, who cares, you're still going to get paid off a year or two later. So my next pick is a uh, Phyrexian tower. Um, part of a fringe legacy deck called the Walking Dead that uses uh, Gravecrawler and Bloodgast alongside Carrion Feeder and Goblin Bombardment to recursively kill opponents one little paper cut at a time. Um, it's not on the reserve list, so there is the danger that this card could show up uh, in EMA this summer. Um, probably as a rare would be my guess. Um, it's currently sitting at around $25. There's not a very deep uh, inventory pool online. I could easily, if it doesn't get reprinted, I could see it hitting 40. Um, it's a midterm pick. My confidence level is a 7 out of 10. Um, I'm predicting a 60% gain if it doesn't get reprinted. So um, as a midterm pick, if you want to wait and see what the EMA list looks like before you jump in, 
Um, you know, I think it would be a, a pretty solid move. It's got a, it's a land with a unique effect. It makes black mana, uh, two black mana, in fact, um, if you sacrifice a creature to it. Um, so it's very useful and casual in EDH circles and, and not easily replaceable. Um, and, uh, you know, it's held out this long without a reprint. I don't think it would have been a high priority target for EMA. Um, the, the way that I've, I've seen the numbers break down for that set, I'm not even sure there's room for it uh, in the rare slot. Um, based on some of the other things I expect to see that would be included ahead of it. Um, yeah, that's my that's my take on Phyrexian Tower. I, I'm just really surprised that this is not on the reserve list. I thought for sure that it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's pretty strange, actually, which it, it's not, you know, an entire set that's on the reserve list. The, the list is very strange. Um, it, it, it includes pieces of lists. And there was a yeah. time when this card was... It's important for people to remember that the reserve list was, in fact, declared to be a thing that was designed to protect the value of cards. Um, it's not a stance that Wizards currently inhabits, but that was the stance at the time. And so when you're asking yourself, why is a card like Tower not on that list? It's because it wasn't worth anything um, when they were drawing up the list the first time. Um, yeah. You know, it was a $5 or less card. They didn't think they needed to protect the value of it in any way. And it's funny. This is a great example. Uh, people talk about this quote unquote format called Eternal uh, that's essentially no reserveless legacy. And one of the barriers is there's no rhyme or reason to figuring out what's legal in that format. Uh, that's a huge list to have to memorize and you can't figure it out easily. And this would be a perfect example of a card you could play in one of these supposed eternal uh, tournaments and you would get judge calls because people would think it wasn't legal. But we, we could talk about this all night. We need to move on. Uh, okay, my next pick is Chandra Flamecaller, the Planeswalker from Oath of the Gatewatch. This is another short to mid pick. Uh, I've got this as a confidence level of about five to six. Right now, copies of this are under $10. Chandra Flamecaller was not uh, too popular on Reveal. Uh, Chandra Pyromaster did very well, but Flamecaller's return to the six mono versions, the expensive ones, and we rarely see expensive Planeswalkers do well. Uh, I think Elspeth Sun's Champion is uh, one of the only six mono Planeswalkers, the only one to see real play. And in the same time, Flamecaller here has been uh, overshadowed by Gideon. Keep in mind, though, that this card has quietly been showing up more than a lot of people expected. Uh, and not only is it showing up in standard, I've seen it pop up in modern legacy list, too. I don't know how much that's going to matter, but I do think $10 for a uh, played, useful Planeswalker with quite a few months left of standard legality in it, which has definitely got some room to grow. And we could see this at $20, I would say, anywhere between the next week and the next three months. Yeah, so I agree with your confidence level uh, being at a five on Chandra. Um, what I'm looking for here to feel more confident is that instead of showing up as a two of in multiple lists, which is a good sign, as she started out really mostly as a one of or a two of out of the sideboard of Jeskai Black. Now we're seeing her in, in green, red ramp builds. Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing her in straight Jeskai builds. Um, you know, she and she's proving to be um, powerfully resilient to some of the solution cards that are in the format. You know, you can't dispel her. Um, you can't uh, sweep her away. Um, and unless you're running flyers, you can't easily attack her. Um, so the, uh, 
And the, and the fact of the matter is that Mantis Rider is pretty good against all the Planeswalkers, but nobody's really running Mantis Rider right now. So what I'm really looking for, though, is that she shows up not as a two of in multiple decks, but as a two of in multiple decks and a four of in a dominant deck that's you know owns the format for a month or more. I think that would be the trigger to set her up to to climb over fifteen dollars and make a run for twenty. Yeah, and and apparently the the Eldrazi ramp, you know, Greenroad ramp builds have been using her a little more. You know, I haven't looked too much, but that's what I've heard, especially because you can drop her. Uh, on turn four or five, and then minus three her to do three damage to everything that the collected company decks are flipping. So you can clear a lot of creatures off the board with her ultimate. Yeah, I mean, between the rally decks wanting to have a bunch of creatures in play and uh, the Bant company decks that are looking like odds-on favorites coming into the into the metagame for the next couple of weeks, um, Chandra's got a lot of benefit. Mm-hmm. So my next pick is a, a short-term play, um, relatively low confidence level. I'm only going to give it a four, um, but uh, it's definitely a card to be keeping your eye on as we see more reveals from Shadows over Innistrad and see just how powerful the madness mechanic is likely to play out. Um, uh, the card is Avaricious Dragon from Origins, which is a, a mythic that is going for just $2, so basically mythic bulk. Um, it's a 4-4 flyer for 4, um, similar stats to Thunderbreak Regent, but instead of doing 3 to uh, opponents when it's targeted, this dragon at the beginning of your draw step gives you an extra card, so you're drawing 2 a turn now, and by the beginning of your end step you've got to discard your hand. So obviously, you know, there was no home for that a card like that. Um, there, there weren't enough uh, low casting cost spells um, to compel Jeskai Black players to, say, integrate this into their list um, when they had so many other options. Um, you know, Gideon often finding a home in the four slot there. But uh, Avaricious Dragon could potentially be an excellent madness enabler um, at the top end of some kind of madness tempo blue-red curve using Storm Chaser Mage and some prowess creatures. Um, to and uh, slip through space and expedite potentially to you know churn through your deck um, and not care too much that you're discarding your hand at the end of turn. Um, so I mean, as a mythic at two dollars, if that was to show up as a four of in, in any list that would want it, it almost certainly would be a four of um, the because you know they stack. If you've got two of them in play, you're drawing three cards a turn. Sure, you're still discarding your hand, but you can't discard it twice. Um, so. If this mythic goes anywhere, you know, I could easily see it hitting five dollars at least, um, which would be you know two hundred percent plus possible gains. Interesting, very interesting. I hadn't really thought about this, but that's a fair, a fair perspective on a uh, unique card. Um, my next card is Goblin Dark Dwellers. This is a mid. Uh, I'm going to say mid because I can't decide if it's short, mid, or long term pick. From both of the Gatewatch, I've given this a confidence level of like six-ish or so. Right now, copies of this have dropped below two dollars. You'll and and I think we could see copies of at least five, possibly a good chunk more. Remember that this is a buy a box promo, which is uh, frequently an indicator of strong standard playability and a card that Wizard thinks is going to be relevant. In fact, out of like every buy a box promo they've done since like Zendikar, I think. Three of them did not have a uh, important standard impact. Uh, two of those of which I bought heavily into. So uh, good pat on my back for those. Um, but yeah, Goblin Dark Dwellers is second coming of Bloodbraid Elf. It's it's basically just better. I think you're always guaranteeing a useful card. Uh, you can guarantee the most mana return on it. And the body is, I would say, considerably more relevant. 
this is a card with a, a high power level, and I think that even if we might not see it in standard, I think that this card has the legs to go the distance. Yeah, Travis. So I'm I'm right there with you on Goblin Dark Dwellers. This is a card that I called out in Digging for Dollars, and my article looking for unsung heroes in Oath of the Gatewatch several weeks ago. The uh, media promos um, are going for just $3 right now. Pack foils are at about $6. Those are very attractive buy-ins for a card that might see long-term legacy play. I mean, sorry, modern play. Um, one of the things I love about this card is that, you know, if you're going to snap back and electrolyze, that's five mana. You can get the same impact by casting a Goblin Dark Dwellers and end up with a 4-4 body that has Menace attached to it. Um, I don't think it's ever going to be a 4 of in, in the modern environment because 5 casting cost creatures generally have to be pretty close to winning the game in that format. But I can certainly see it as an ongoing 1 or a 2 of in Grix's control builds and, and potentially other decks. It's definitely got some casual legs as uh, and EDH legs as, the kind of, as a replacement or a supplementary effect alongside things like uh, Snapcaster Mage. And because of all those reasons, I'd be happy to be holding a pile of this card down the road. Glad to hear it. Okay, so my last pick of the week, folks, is uh, Endbringer Foils. Um, this is a midterm pick, confidence level 7 out of 10. This is an Oath of the Gatewatch rare that's been showing up in legacy Eldrazi lists, sometimes as a 2 of, sometimes as a 4 of. Uh, it's a 5 5 that you put into play for 5 and a colorless. Um, you can tap it to deal one damage to a creature or player for uh, a colorless and a tap. You can target creature, make target creature uh, not attack or block this turn. And for two colorless and tap, you can draw a card. Um, it also has the very intriguing text of uh, untapping uh, on each other player's untap step. So that designates it as both um, generally useful um, and extremely useful in big EDH games. Um, these foils are currently available for under $3. Um, my target would be $8 to $10 long-term for an easy double-up. Um, if this becomes a legacy staple, um, there's no way that the foil rares stay at $3. Um, and though legacy, I mean, though Eldrazi are likely to be banned in modern come April, they are not likely to be banned in legacy, where they are probably going to settle in as a tier 2 deck um, that can be you know, handled via sideboard options in the format. Um, but I love this card, um, given its ca long-legged appeal um, in both casual and potentially eternal formats. Uh, this is a very curious card, and one that would not typically be on my radar. I like this as an EDH card. I mean, it does so much in that format, and uh, I mean, it can be played in every EDH deck. Really, this is this is, a, this is a good one. This is a good one. I like this one, James. Well, I mean, there's a I think there's a game day promo out which has gorgeous art. Um, and they're only going for about a dollar right now. Um, I think those are a very serious um, long-term spec that could easily hit five to ten down the road. Um, yeah, I, I have every intention of picking up about a hundred of these. I, I started buying in a few weeks ago um, when I first saw it on camera. Um, this morning I was watching Jeff Hoogland play on his stream, um, running Legacy Eldrazi, and he was facing down an Emrakul that was being kept in check by an Endbringer because yeah. target creature can't attack or block this turn, and Emrakul's uh, protection ability is against colored spells. And also spells. Yeah. <laughs> so the the Endbringer was holding off Emrakul for turn after turn. Uh, six or seven turns later, Hoogland put the game away. That was all I needed to put it on this, the list this week. Jeez. All right. Uh, quick sell watch update card you should be getting rid of. Uh, I'm going to say every pain land that has moved, so a dark our ways, 
Carpuzin Forest. Uh, I'm holding the other three until those colors of Eldrazi deck become relevant. Uh, and in general, just all the Eldrazi cards. I think we said the same thing last week, but these are just cards you do not want to get caught holding to stick with. Yeah, I mean, if, if Eldrazi becomes a thing in Legacy, there's going to be a window of opportunity to move in on some of these foils um, at bargain prices when people are unloading them out of their modern decks um, You know, in early mid-April. Um, but for now, it, you and everybody else should be trading these out. Um, I mean, I've definitely found uh, some resistance um, to... Uh, getting rid of these cards, um, maybe consider instead of unloading them at at discount prices, folks, you might want to hold them for a potential legacy deck. Um, but you know, if you're if you've got a, a pile of these sitting around that you bought um, after the pro tour, um, you may want to consider buy listing them, uh, even if it, it it's going to cost you some money, because once that deck is banned in modern, uh, we're definitely going to see those the prices on those cards lag for some time. Definitely, definitely. Uh, okay, that sets us up for segment three, uh, metagame week in review. This week we're looking at Star City St. Louis. It was a modern open. And the story here is the same as we've all heard time and time again over the last two weeks. Uh, Eldrazi, Eldrazi, Eldrazi. It was 50% of the top eight and 50% of the top 32, which means that this isn't just a deck that managed to spike the top eight. Uh, I mean, it just saturated the event they're everywhere I, I don't think i need to really tell you about the docs it's just i cannot see a universe in which wizards does not ban this deck in modern yeah it, it's still debatable whether it's eldrazi temple or eye of Ugin, but one of those two pieces is getting banned um you know affinity actually took the day here um and affinity made up 25 percent of the top eight and 25 percent of the top 32 um also very consistent in its showing but, you know, in second, we had blue-white Eldrazi. In third, we had blue-red. We had red-green in fourth. So, I mean, the core of this deck is so powerful that you can kind of pick any two colors you want and throw them on top of it and have a viable deck. And if you're a pro and you can, and you tune it or you have a team you can test it with against the metagame, you can whip it into a, the kind of build that only a deck as fast as Infect or Infinity has a chance of raising. It's funny that Magic is a game that is built on the color wheel, and the color pie is so vital to the longevity and endurance of the game, and yet 75% of the decks in this top list essentially played no colors. <laughs> yeah, Just, exactly. I mean, this is the lesson right. we're being taught, is that making color lists too powerful is a bad move. I mean, the aforementioned Jeff Hoogland placed fifth in this top eight, making yet another top eight in, in the SCG series, um, using his Kiki Core deck that he's been practicing a lot with. Um, and we did have a Merfolk deck make top eight. But the bottom line is this, that the format is warped far, far too hard against the Eldrazi. Um, it's turning a lot of players off. I actually find, you know, the the subtle inter, in, interweaving of the metagame um, shifts between the different Eldrazi decks. Interesting, but I can understand fully how many other people are just fed up, frustrated, and want to move on. Um, you know, there's no emergency ban forthcoming. That part's been made clear by Watsi. But, you know, come April, expect these decks to be gone. And that will open up a very interesting chapter in MTG Finance because that, that vacuum hole, 50% of the top 32 disappearing and being replaced, means there are going to be some very sexy financial opportunities come April. Yeah, people, I keep seeing this pop up as, oh, they banned Splinter Twin and they wanted diversity and this is what they got was all Drazi. And it just completely misses the point because it's not like 
these are two events that are, are disconnected in causality. They just happen to be related temporally. Uh, Splinter Twin would have had nothing had nothing to do with this and wouldn't have changed anything. If you think a deck with a huge Mungus Mon advantage, uh, uncounterable creatures that can't don't die to any of their removal uh, would somehow lose to Splinter Twin. You're nuts. Like this deck would have just steamrolled Splinter Twin. Um, well, I mean, it's it's it, like it, if Twin had a perfect draw and they comboed out on turn four, then they would have won. And in any other draw, but, but, they would have been on the back foot. And, but Eldrazi, was, uh, some builds were playing seven one-mana removal spells, all which kill Exarch. Yeah. So, like, like just, right. okay, good luck. How are you beating that, typically? And you can't counter their Thought Not Seers? All right, good luck. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they'd win some games, but... Um, and you know what? This is, uh, this is a great opportunity for us to segue into our for, uh, fourth topic, or fourth seg- segment this week. Um, and uh, you wrote down here whether Wizards should test Modern. So I'm going to let you start with this one yeah i think i'm for once i'm going to be the voice of the community here and and echo what i've heard many people um talking about in social media and forums and so forth over the last few weeks and and that's the simple fact that you know wizards has expressed a few times now this year that they don't test for modern um and i think that that is ridiculous um quite frankly um if modern is the preeminent um non-rotating format um, alongside standard and legacy is going to largely be left by the wayside, you know, EMA notwithstanding, since I don't actually think EMA is intended to, um, boost legacy at all. Um, certainly not meant to boost vintage, which is another kind of forgotten format. Um, you know, if, if modern is the thing and, and a format that, you know, the core of at least the competitive players, um, are playing, and let's be clear here. I think that 90% of the millions of magical players, you know, mostly play at their kitchen table and don't care about any of this. Um, highly unlikely that Eldrazi are dominating in the kitchen table scene as hard as they are dominating uh, elsewhere. Um, the The reality is that, you know, we're only talking about the competitive people, but the competitive people are the ones that kind of set the tone for the health of the game because they're the ones that are the most active in the community at large. They're the ones that are showing up, you know, at their LGSs and and playing and discussing and testing um, and buying cards. And and because of that, um, their interests should be um, better protected through the allocation of resources at Wizards of the Coast to include in their testing regimen um, you know, a modern gauntlet that gets, you know, a couple of weeks of attention. There are excellent um, statistical um, data pools for them to draw from, including, you know, recent results on their own Magic Online game um, where they have, you know, godlike um, uh, overviews of uh, the state of those metagames and um, access to deck lists from, you know, top pros playing in recent tournaments. And a lot of the people that are working for and on their testing teams are either uh, prior pros or people of such uh, high intellect that they can certainly foresee, um, you know, how these decks are going to play out. So for them to say that, you know, oops, we don't test for that, I think is, you know, either disingenuous or irresponsible. It, ha- it has to be one of the two. Well, for the first time in six episodes, I am going to take a uh, respectful but firm opposite position to you go for um, it partner I, well you know i think that in a dream world it would be great i don't even want to say it would be great if wizards could test modern i think there's value in it 
Uh, first, I want to point out that the Eldrazi lists that showed up after Oath of the Gatewatch came out were those mono black ones similar to what Frank Lepore was playing, which were not at all dominating. They were interesting and they were decent, but they weren't crushing the format by any means. And the entire community was kind of working on that vector until the Pro Tour. It wasn't until the Pro Tour that we got the the builds that have taken over Magic in general. And that was only at the hands of, uh, I believe, two teams. And one of them had like multiple Hall of Fame players and like 20 players in the house working on that deck. So, uh, you know, would Wizards have found it eventually? Possibly. But the amount of man hours required when trying to run the business would have been uh, extremely high. I think it's easy to underestimate how much work those decks can be to find. Um, I do think that to some extent they test. Uh, you know, I'm sure that occasionally they have cards in the in the development design process that either do or don't make it out the door that they kind of look at and go, are we happy with what this does to modern or, or legacy or, or, you know, do we feel like we understand the, the ramifications of this? And, um, you know, I'm sure some cards get changed because they realize that they could make it better for they could keep the card acceptable and standard while not ruining one of the eternal formats like modern. Um, and I would guess that that happens in some in some amount, but at a larger level, I'm not sure that I want Wizards to test Modern. What we're experiencing right now is part of Magic history, and I will be the first to admit that I pretty much canceled my trip to GP Detroit because of Eldrazi. But at the same time, it's kind of cool to see this all unfold. Uh, and I think we'll look back at it and everyone will, everyone will look back at it and go, wow, that was a crazy two or three months. Like that time period between Oath of the Gatewatch and Shadows Over Innistrad, it was just, it was all Eldrazi all the, all the time. Just in the same way that we still talk about Combo Winner with Tolarian Academy back from the Urza Saga days. So it's a little uncomfortable at the Grand Prix level right now, but so long as it's not prolonged, I think it adds to the tapestry of Magic's history, and it's kind of interesting and exciting to look back at and think about. And if, if Wizards really tested to make sure that Modern wasn't broken, not only would you get these, these formats that kind of fell outside of the bell curve, you would also remove the chance of ever having anything really cool show up. You kind of like whitewash the format okay so the marketing professional in me says you hit on a, a pretty valid point there that you know maybe wizards wants cards to be broken and get banned because it heightens drama and drama gets people talking about the brand and all publicity is good publicity um i can buy that they haven't admitted to it i don't think they would um but there's no, definitely no. some value there for for magic as a whole I in, And also, if you're not financially affected by it, I think you're less likely to be upset, and neither of us are. The 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 player in me, though, and the guy that sits across from 12-year-olds you know, at F&M every week that can only afford one deck, um, says, okay, sure, they can't, they can't test the format to its full conclusion because they don't have the same resources... Um, or statistical um, crunching power as millions of players playing in a metagame worldwide do. And there have been many stories shared from Wizards employees over the years um, expressing surprise when certain decks have showed up in you know, various metagames um, because they were testing them internally and didn't find the decks. So that's also a valid point, that just because they test it doesn't mean they'd find it. Um, I do, however, find it hard to believe that they didn't uh, do one of two things. Either they they 
were fully aware how broken the core of the Eldrazi were going to be, and they threw it out there anyway, in which case people have a reason to be upset, or um, they didn't test it uh, enough that they could have tweaked a few of these cards. Because the reality is that if you were to say, just remove Mimic from the set, or tweak uh, the ability on Thought Not Seer, or remove one keyword from Reality Smasher, it might have knocked this deck down to a reasonable level where it could have been an equally exciting deck that would have settled, settled into a, you know, a regular part of the rotation and modern. And a lot of people would have been able to get on board. A lot of people would have felt more comfortable buying more Oath of the Gatewatch product because you know, you and I both, both have to imagine, and, and I'm sure you would agree, that dealers are probably having more trouble moving packs this week than they were a few weeks back on the basis that most of the big cards in the set are Eldrazi-based and nobody really wants to be caught holding them if they don't have them already. Well, that one's tough tough for me to agree with. I think, on the one hand, I can appreciate that, but you're giving a humongous portion of the consumer base credit for looking at possible bans and holding off on buying packs just on that. I mean, we know that product is sold not to spikes. It's sold to casual players and the casual players are going, wow, I heard these Eldrazi are amazing and the prices on them are really high. I should buy some packs because those cards are worth a lot. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it go the other way. It's hard for me to say for sure. Yep, that's, that's and, a and fair furthermore, point. And, and, and furthermore, you make the point of like, well, they could have tweaked it, you know, just remove Mimic or just change a word on Reality Smasher. And, and you're right, you very possibly could have crafted an archetype that was fair and fun. Um, but that's that's it's such a fine-grained detail. Like, what word is it on Reality Smasher that's too much? Is it the trample? Is it the haste? Is it the targeting part of it? Would Mimic have been fair at three mon instead of two? Like, to get to the point to figure out those small mobs to tweak would have required a lot of man hours, and you risk the odds of them going the other direction and just kind of neutering it. And then the people end up saying, man, I wish they had pushed these Eldrazi just a little bit harder because they're just, they're supposed to be Eldrazi and huge and scary and they're not at all. They're just not doing anything in any format. So I, I guess at the end of the day, it's really easy to be upset and annoyed about this in a week or two time frame. But I'm glad that Wizards is willing to make these types of gambits uh, in the format as a whole because it means we get to see cool and exciting things that are sometimes too good. Because the alternative, where we never get anything like that and we never have anything exciting show up, is boring. And that's not why I play Magic. So my my final thrust is simply that, let's say you put four guys on this at $50,000 a year and their job is just to know how modern works and what modern needs. You know, you're talking about plus bonuses and benefits and so forth, maybe 300,000 US. I'm finding it hard to believe that this isn't going to cost Wizards more than 300K in lost goodwill and or sales based on people holding back on on Oath of the Gatewatch product. Now, you're certainly correct in saying that much of the product is moved to casuals, but um, per player at the spike level spikes by a lot more product and maybe the expedition lands and oath are 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 good enough to drive sales um regardless of what's going on with the modern staples that have come out of the set um but i'm going to be very interested to see what the development notes um look like when we get the the related article um from the wizards team that explains you know the, the you know the ones that they put out where Mero shows us the conversation that was going on on their internal forum about the cards. I want to see what they had to say about the Eldrazi when they were in testing. 
yeah, yeah that'll be interesting the, the m finals or whatever and and i'm i'm perfectly willing to admit that this fell outside of the realm of what wizards was shooting for or what they consider acceptable that's you're very possibly right that 300 grand for people testing the format um would be worth it relative to what they lost but uh you know it's just it happens to fall outside of that range but if you have those guys testing maybe too often it falls on the other side of that range but um all right was there anything you wanted to finish up with here james before we, before oh, we wrap I, up? I think we're good i think we're good on testing modern and um, i just wanted to have a quick word with everybody about conspiracy 2 um just to point out some interesting financial ramifications um one of the things that's interesting about conspiracy 2 being announced is that um it marks the first time uh, at least in recent memory that we're getting two big supplemental products in the same summer. This is, of course, on top of the new four set blocks uh, or two two set blocks um, twice a year. So moving from the original three set block plus the core set to two two set blocks um, starting this year. Um, and now in the same summer where we're going to get um, the second half of the um, Innistrad block um, uh, in June, I believe, we then get... Uh, Eternal Masters, um, very quickly followed up about uh, six weeks later by Conspiracy 2. And so, you know, Travis and I were discussing this off off, uh, off mic about, you know, what this likely means. And what we think it means is that, um, you know, that player growth has flatlined. Um, and since we can't add more players to the mix, we have to add, uh, you know, Watsi is owned by Hasbro. Hasbro is a Fortune 500 company. They answer to their shareholders. They need to continue to grow profits or things go wrong for people um, at the top end of that organization. So, you know, what do they do? They they shake up the block format. They add an additional supplemental product. And if you are the, the reason this matters is that if you are the kind of player who has been vocal in social media that you think magic is too expensive, um, believe uh, you this. Creating the new format Eternal is not going to solve your problems. Um, whining on social media, not going to solve your problems. What may solve your problem is if you vote with your wallet and fail to buy one of those sets. If, on the other hand, you go ahead and buy your usual allocation of each set that comes out, including a new set that didn't used to be a new set slot that didn't used to exist, all you're telling Wizards is that their plans make perfect sense and that they are executing them well because you have voted with your wallet by giving them additional funds and proven to them that the elasticity in your budget for magic is actually higher than you would have them believe when you're talking to them about it in social media. I don't have much to add here other than I, I pretty much agree with all of it. I will point out um, at a card level that with all of this product showing up between the months of what, like May and September, that there is going to be a card or two that slip under the radar and there very well may be another Jace Rins Prodigy, uh, maybe even one named Jace. <laughs> so a uh, lot of money to the guy or girl who figures out what card it is that we all sleep on that quintuples up. I, I think the next six months in Magic could be some of the best times to be involved in MTG Finance in recent memory. Um, when the Eldrazi gets banned, there's going to be a major shakeup in Modern. 
um, a bunch of standard cards are going to go way under the radar. And the the summer lull that usually accompanies standard cards is going to be even deeper. Every In 2013 and 2015, when the Modern Masters sets came out, standard cards took a nosedive because everybody was focused on those sets. Now that you've got EMA followed up relatively shortly thereafter by Conspiracy, all the people interested in Legacy, Vintage, Block, um, and, and Cube are all going to have tons of things to be spending their money on and standard cards are going to are going to languish once the modern season's over and that shakeup takes place there'll be some time to make money and then some of those cards will start to drop off um many many opportunities coming down the pipeline and you know what if you tune in every week we can keep you apprised of what's going on and where you should be watching going forward uh, so James, uh, we're wrapping up uh, a little longer of a show this week, but I think it was one of our best. Where can people find you? Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. And my name again is Travis Allen. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at wizard bumpin B U M P I N. And I write every Wednesday on mtgprice.com. That brings us to the end of our six, number six, MTG Fast Finance podcast. And I thought uh, we had a great conversation today, James. Yep, we had a good time, Travis. And I hope you guys uh, have a good time chasing after your specs this week. Have a nice night, everybody. Take care.